0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized today's event. It's my pleasure to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. And it's also my pleasure to welcome back Dick Walker to speak uh, again um, this time on New Deal or versus the New Green Deal. Um, and I- he is a professor emeritus from UC Berkeley, and in addition to that, he is the executive director of the Living New Deal. And uh, he came to speak uh, last time to us with his last book, which was uh, The Pictures of a Gone City, Tech and the Dark Side of Prosperity. Uh, we had a lot of people from the Silicon Valley companies come to hear that one. Thanks a lot. Dick, thank you very much for coming back.
0: My pleasure. All right, thank you, George. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for being here. Thanks to the Commonwealth Club, although they did put me up against a couple of other speakers. They obviously believe in the competitive model (laughs) of intellectual activity, which we old professors are not so used to. Anyway, tonight I'm going to talk about the New Deal and what it offers. Uh, as a model for the Green New Deal, for our time. The New Deal, I'm going to argue that the New Deal was not only successful in its time, but it really is something we can look back to for inspiration today. It is not dead history. The past is not past. It's not even over. So here it is, and we need a New Deal again. And there are proposals out there which are very exciting, and uh, getting a certain amount of... um, uh, a certain amount of energy and enthusiasm, but also a lot of pushback. So it's important to go back and think what the New Deal did and what that could mean for us today. So um, what we do need is an equally ambitious and thoroughgoing program, an attack on all the problems led that we face, led by the federal government, which is really the only entity with the power, money, and democratic control to take charge of such a... Uh, sweeping effort as we need today. I begin by briefly reiterating the dire situation facing the nation, which demands a Green New Deal. I then enumerate the principles of the New Deal, which offer profound lessons for the country and ought to guide the formulation of a Green New Deal. After that, I will go through the major problems to be addressed by the nation today, environmental, social, and political and how they might be attacked in the spirit of the New Deal and its guiding principles. Before going further, I wanted to note that FDR actually spoke here at the Commonwealth Club in 1932. And he was sketching out his ideas, obviously, for what he would do when he was president. And you can find this. uh, I can give you the the URL if you want. It's online, of course. Everything is. Not true. Okay. <laughs> no, and it's not, which is why we have the Living New Deal, which is documenting everything the New Deal did, which no one ever did. It was never written down, it was never documented. There are bits and pieces here and there. And the Living New Deal is a nonprofit. We've, for the last 10 years, been mapping everything the New Deal did, plus discussing its programs and its achievements and the relevance for today. Please look at our website, livingnewdeal.org. Very simple. Um, I, FDR was surprisingly conservative in his speech to the Commonwealth Club. He appealed to the better angels of business, wouldn't you, wouldn't you know, and to a responsible government to serve the public good by restraining the new princes of industry and providing for the needs of the people. He would, uh, he would learn that it would be a lot, take a lot more than that. To move the country out of the Great Depression. But fortunately, he was an exceptional leader who had the courage and the vision to actually do that with a team, an amazing team, of new dealers like Harold Ickes and and, uh, uh, Francis Perkins and so on who, who pushed him to do more all the time. And he listened most of the time, though he was a consummate politician and was always calculating. You know, what, what was going to be possible, what could get done, and what couldn't. So, first of all, why is the Green New Deal necessary today? <clears throat> we face a fourfold challenge in this country, which, is, which are clear. These things are clear, I think, to people of good conscience and good reason, which, of course, only includes slightly over half of this country, <laughs> unfortunately. First of all, we have a climate crisis, which is bearing down on us like a runaway train. Uh, Climate change is not in the future. It's really here and now. And I don't think I have to persuade Californians of this and how it's clobbering us right now. We are facing rapidly rising temperatures that produce greater storms, greater floods, longer droughts, bigger wildfires, failing crops and disappearing wildlife, as well as rising sea levels and more. And it'll only get worse. This is not the new normal. The new normal is ahead of us, and it's going to be worse. So, if you don't, ask, if you don't believe me, by the way, the F- San Francisco Federal Reserve just put out a report on the economic cost of worsening climate disasters in terms of failing insurance, collapsing property values, government bankruptcy, and more. So... You know, it's not us wild-eyed radicals that are making this call. This is something that's before us, and I think again, Californians of good conscience sitting here with the Kincaid fire going on know very well what we're talking about. The second crisis is a social crisis, and it's because of the gulf that's opened up between the very rich and the rest over the last thirty years, and especially since the Great Recession in 2008, when it the financial collapse, where things got worse, actually, for inequality, rather than better, as they did in the, in the Great Depression. It's the worst inequality since the 1920s, and probably since the Gilded Age, although the measurements for the Gilded Age are less precise, obviously. But people have called it the New Gilded Age, and it's really a most appropriate title. Absurd accumula- It's marked by absurd accumulation of riches by the few. And although, of course, we want brilliant and deserving people to be rewarded, not against that, but there's no reason anybody needs $50 billion. And it's just, it's crazy. It's rents, it's excess profits that just pile up in the hands, whether they're tech guys or financial investors, and nobody needs that much money. But the rest of us do, and I'll get back to that. The Bay Area is actually a leader in enrichment at the top. You can see my book, Pictures of a Gone City. I've got all the data in there. We have more billionaires per square foot than any place on earth. Um, We are also, of course, the the country as a whole, not so much the Bay Area, is characterized by stagnant wages over the last 50 years. They really have gone up very little in real terms. There's a little, at the end of every boomlet, There's a little push, like we've just had in the last couple years. But overall, household incomes are quite stagnant for the working class, and especially for the bottom 50%. The The bottom 20%, or even 40%, are in dire straits, even here. Because the cost of living, not only the income's the highest here, but the cost of living is the highest. And the cost of living is driven very much by the upper half, and the lower half have to make do with trying to find housing two hours away from the center, from their jobs, or by crowding in, uh, or whatever. But all the strategies that they use to try and survive. And uh, we have a minimum federal minimum wage that hasn't been raised, but a little bit in decades. That was, by the way, invented by the New Deal. And we have people calling for a $15 living wage, but even that in the Bay Area isn't adequate. <clears throat> the result is that housing or affordability in the Bay Area is some of the highest in the world. It's crazy. And that's why we also have one of the highest rates of homeless in the world. And it's also a question of social and racial justice, injustice, because who owns this wealth? It's overwhelmingly white men in charge of these companies who are in charge of the big families that have the riches. And the working class, especially in California, but increasingly across the U.S., and especially in the big cities, are immigrants and their children and African Americans and a handful of other people of color. That's our new working class. Two-thirds of the workers are people of color. So this class injustice is also a racial injustice. And what does this pretend for our country? It is a moral, and a moral problem of injustice, but it's also literal sickness. I recommend the work of Frank Wilkinson in Britain about the fact that the more unequal countries or states are, and he's done this for the U.S. and for a variety of European countries and Latin America, the sicker we are. And rich people are sicker, too. Their life expectancy goes down. So it's actually crazy. And then you can start adding on the drug crisis, youth unemployment and resentment, racial conflict that plagues our country today. The economic malaise. Now, you probably haven't heard about that. But most of our problems relate to the economy's poor poor performance over the last 40 years, since 1980, under neoliberalism. You don't hear about this because the elites, by and large, are very happy. The top 1%, are doing great, and even the top 10%, the well-to-do professionals, which a lot of us, have done fine, but the rest have not. And uh, you don't hear about it because business profits have been up, the stocks and real estate prices just gone up and up and up, and uh, plus you get a lot of puffery out of governments, our various politicians who want to prove that they're the greatest and that the economy's never been better in world history. Who could I be talking about? We actually had a very poor recovery from the Great Recession. It was the worst recovery from any recession on record, going back to the Great Depression. It took forever to get back to pre-recession peak. You can look this up easily, get a graph on just go Google it. <clears throat> uh, and it's due to weak investment and low productivity increase. That is, The capitalists are not doing their job or they don't have anything they see to invest in, which seems very curious because there's so much that needs to be done. We haven't even been able to get out of fossil fuels and investment in green energy has gone down in the last few years, not up. It's kind of incredible, even as the economy supposedly is doing so well. Unemployment. The official unemployment rate, oh, we're at full employment, 3.7%. Now, in 1950, nobody would have accepted that as full employment, by the way. But okay. But underemployment is twice that. And earlier in the recession, it was three times the official unemployment rate. That's people who do not have full-time jobs, people who are doing part-time, half-time work. And the labor participation rate, the number, percentage of adults who are in the labor force, is still at a kind of all-time low outside of the for a supposed revival. It's at 63%. It's not even two-thirds. Should be up around uh, over 75 to 80%. There's a piling up of unspent surpluses because the rich don't order to invest all their loot. And the corporations don't. Uh, they speculate in paper assets and real estate. Buy 25% of the stocks Purchases in the last few years are buybacks by the companies to drive their stock prices up more because they don't know what to do with their money. They have, do you know how much is in offshore accounts held by the wealthy, American wealthy, or the corporations? Thirty-two trillion dollars. It's hard to imagine. The GDP, our annual GDP is what, about twelve trillion now? There's also been persistent underconsumption by the working class, which has dragged down the economy, and the use of debt to boost the spending, which blew up in 2008 rather spectacularly, especially in California, which was the worst. And since then, huge falls in home ownership rates and the amount of living space per person. And I could go on and on about the undercutting of American wages, Walmartization, Amazonization. We're doing so, you know, we're so happy because all these packages apply, uh, arrive on our doorstep. But the workers are getting paid the lowest possible wages. And that's Amazonization. And they've simply imitated Walmart with a better interst- internet portal. So are we better off now? No not outside a few favorite places. And from San Francisco, it's really beautiful out there. It's really nice around here. The restaurants are fantastic. But interior California is one, one of the worst places in the country. And the rest of the country, a lot of it, is doing really badly. I should have brought figures, but I didn't. The final problem we're facing is a political crisis, a political regression with the rise of the extreme right and of white supremacy, that's quite frightening. And it's not happenstance. It's happening all over the world as a result of the Great Recession, the plight of ordinary people who don't see the governments are meeting, are dealing with their needs, who are worse off, see their children are worse off than they are. And there's a lot of despair and failure to address that despair, which leads to things like drug use, um, and alienation and white men feeling so angry that they've, their status has fallen, they don't have jobs or they got crappy jobs. And that's real. That stuff is absolutely real. And just to blame it on recidivist thinking without looking at the economic foundations, I think is a great mistake. On the other, on the other hand, we have... Amazing use of demagoguery by leaders using the old fascist playbook of nationalism, xenophobia, and victimization by hidden enemies, plus the big lie, which, as we know, Hermann Goebbels uh, um, perfected for Hitler and seems to be being perfected by our current leaders. Um, We fail failure to regulate the most important industry of our time, which is right here. We have failed totally to regulate as the basis of all communication and news today. Just kind of astounding. And California bears a big responsibility for that. So, then in the end, democracy itself is in danger, as many people have said. And uh, I think we have to be really worried about that. All right, so those are the crises we face, and the Green New Deal may seem ambitious, but if you think about what we're facing as a whole, it doesn't seem that ambitious at all. It seems absolutely necessary for a broad broad, uh, front to to attack, of government programs and leadership to attack this. So I don't think anything short of Green New Deal will actually save us from climate change, concentration of power, economic drift, and political disintegration. Now, I'm going to talk about the New Deal model now. The New Deal was a wide-ranging set of government programs engaging the American people. It wasn't just a few quick fixes in the 1930s. It was actually, if you look at all the the, the statistics about government, about politics, about the economy, about social the social safety nets and so on. It was an absolute turning point in American history, every bit as important as the Civil War or the Civil Rights Movement, which we talk about a lot, but we don't talk that much about the New Deal, which is kind of astounding. More, much more of a turning point, by the way, than World War II. Now, I divide the New Deal into four areas, economic recovery, programs for the people, investment and modernization, and national political revival, Sound familiar to the last four points I just made? Economic recovery. The Great Depression was the greatest failure of capitalism in history, and a very profound challenge to the legitimacy of the nation's class system, our politics, and our leadership. And here's what the New Deal did in response. It ended financial excess and cleaned up the banks, the stock market, uh, the Well, uh, cleaned up investment banking and the split commercial and investment banking, solidified the dollar, and got the financial system back on its feet, which is absolutely essential for the recovery that followed. Because the collapse of the Great Depression was greatly intensified by the collapse of a third of the banks. And you have to remember, the Great Depression, by 1933, GDP had fallen 50%. Unemployment was at 25%. So this is pretty staggering Figures. It provided mass work relief for the unemployed with decent wages, uh, relief payments, and pensions for desperate working families, that is, the lower half or lower two thirds of the population. It greased the wheels of recovery through government spending with deficits, which were, by the way, absolutely verboten at the time, plus pumping more money into the hands of working people through these wages and pensions and so on. And also did things for business like price controls, particularly in agriculture, that was important. And they paid for that, by and large, through higher taxes on the rich and on corporations. And uh, as well as, of course, getting rid of prohibition, you had alcohol taxes, which are very helpful. <laughs> and... Uh, Higher revenues from a very rapid recovery. The economy recovered at rates of upwards of 10% a year. And you hear things like, oh, the New Deal failed, we didn't recover until World War II. That's baloney. The GDP was up to the level of 1929 and 1939, despite that very short, harsh recession in 37, 38. By 41, the economy had recovered completely, with the one exception of employment, full employment before World War II sucked up the last 10% of the unemployed. But they lowered unemployment from 25% to, to 10% during that time. Secondly, it had programs for the people. It provided work relief for millions through the CCC, the CWA, WPA, the NYA, and all the alphabet soup. And it was more than jobs. It was life-saving, and it was meaningful. It was life-saving for families in an income economic sense, but it was also life-saving for people in their sense of self worth self-respect. It saved Ronald Reagan's father, it saved Dick Cheney's father. You don't hear too much about that from the Republicans <laughs> do you and a whole lot of uh, it saved um oh now I'm going to blow it <laughs> who's the great who's the great uh um, country singer who's saying huh? Johnny Cash, his father. <laughs> same to his father, too. Okay, so <clears throat> it supported incomes. It raised incomes by supporting unionization, fair and minimum wages, pensions, Social Security, and safety net transfers, like unemployment insurance. It reduced inequality by raising the bottom and lowering the top by taxing although the stock market crash and the wipeout of a lot of rich people's holdings and stocks did help uh, reduce inequality as well. So did those (laughs) banks. I have bank shares from my mother's family in Tulsa, the First National Bank of Tulsa, and they were quite wealthy at that time, but they weren't after 1930. Um, Those shares weren't worthless. And they invested in people. They invested in education, in recreation, in health, And so on. And these were universal programs, which is a really important principle. It made these programs acceptable and popular. There were some exclusions, which are regrettable, but they're not as big as you may have heard. And by and large, the principle was generality. And that included that, and along with that sort of general. Uh, programs, they also had special programs for the disadvantaged. So they did both. They were aware of the handicapped, of African Americans, of women, of the aging, of immigrants. There were special programs for all those people. And on top of that, they emphasized the public goods, civic facilities, public access, and horror of horror, public art everywhere. Mm-hmm they thought it was important to edify and uplift the spirits of the people and not just put money in their pockets. Now, they also had programs to rebuild the nation through government investment. So it wasn't just work relief and short-term revival. It was long-term investment in deep infrastructure, public works, large and small, using government investment to, to both produce, and also revive uh, the rest of the economy, because, of course, if you're going to build a dam, you're going to need a lot of cement, and a lot of steel, and a lot of other supplies that the private industry would provide, so it wasn't all done by the public. It was geographically universal, and it was aimed at reviving, declining, and dying rural areas which at that time, of course, it was the death of the small farm, these backwaters up in Appalachia and so on, and around the west and in the south, there were important to attack. Boy, it kind of sounds like today. So they, they invested in highways and in electric systems, electrification, REA, water resources, invested in schools and education invested in planning and brought, basically brought the entire country into the 20th century, which was not true in 1930. And another very important thing is they healed the land along with the people through massive pr- programs of soil conservation, reforestation. CCC planted 3 billion trees. Was it 3 or 6 billion? 3 billion, I think. Uh, grazing controls and restoration uh, erosion control, and so on, on grazing lands, receding, and more. They also did uh, enlarge parks, did more preservation, uh, added 200 wildlife refuges, and so on and so forth. The New Deal was already green. This is not a new idea. Because Why? Because this country and its economy and its conquest of a continent are rather rapacious. And we had pretty much raped a continent by that time and it was in dire need of restoration. Well, we've done it again. And now the earth is really fighting back. Then it was dust storms and suffering. But now, it's climate change. Finally, it brought a political revival of the nation. Because, first of all, it had, it had government action in the time of crisis. The government, its leaders, The political leadership took charge, FDR and the New Dealers. They showed urgency, ambition, and leadership in doing something. At a time when Hoover's Secretary of Treasury, Andrew Mellon, said, well, we just have to wait for the market to resolve this. Well, if you're going to wait for the market to resolve climate change, inequality, and Donald Trump, we're not going to get there. Not in our lifetimes, if ever. They had the principle of serving the people and mobilizing the people. In other words, it wasn't government did this, government did that. It was exactly the Jack Kennedy kind of thing. Ask what you can do for your nation. And people responded. It it was a reciprocal politics from top to bottom. Yes, the New Dealers were progressives, old progressives, a lot of them, who felt they they were reformers. They got in there, we're going to do reform. At the same time, workers got organized. Mass unionization, there were protest movements like the Townsend Movement. And there was a huge push from below. And the more the New Deal did programs and the more it allowed greater labor rights, the more the people actually rallied behind it. So that FDR won the greatest uh, electoral victory in history, American history, in 1936 over Alf Landon, because he was popular, because the people feel felt like the government was working for them, and they also could work with the government for the revival of the nation. It showed that the, people, the government cared for the common people because it was, there was an ethical basis. It wasn't pure economics or politics or calculation. It was also an ethical program that believed in that the people should have health care, so that the kids should be fed in schools. How many... WPA provided 6 million... Uh, no, it was more than that. It was millions of schools, school lunches, for example... That was when that idea... The, food, um, the idea of food stamps, by the way, comes out of the New Deal to help the poor and absorb the agricultural surplus. Great idea. They, they built schools all over the country. They built university buildings. Um, they had teachers. They put teachers under the NYA in schools across the country. And then, of course, they had arts to hire unemployed artists. Because artists are people too, amazingly enough. (laughs) And they get unemployed and hungry. And finally, they provided a sense of national purpose. The New Deal gave Americans more than slogans like Make America Great Again or even Hope and Change. Mm -hmm. That is, it gave Americans a project They could see everywhere of national renewal, national rebuilding, that they could participate in, see in their communities, see all around them. And it created a political earthquake that lasted for 50 years. The Democratic Party became the dominant party for the next 50 years. And the Republicans had dominated for decades before that with an odd case. You know, Wilson snuck through because of split vote. Grover Cleveland, we all remember Grover Cleveland <laughs> for his greatness. Okay, challenges for today. Before I run out of time, I got another ten or fifteen minutes here. Ten minutes, I hope. Um, we have these massive challenges which a Green New Deal could could meet, and this is what we should do. Here are some key elements of the key places where the elements of the New Deal still apply: climate change. A response is going to take money. It's going to take labor. It's going to take long-term investment. It's going to take planning. All the things that the New Deal did with the PWA, the WPA, the CCC, the TVA, and more. First of all, respond to natural disasters. A couple years ago, I probably wouldn't have put this on the list, but now we realize hurricanes and flooding and wildfires, they they had massive floods, for example, in the Mississippi and Ohio Valley in the 30s. And the CCC, WPA, immobilized thousands of young men to go out there and help with flood protection, with the sandbags. Long Beach fell down. Parts of Southern California, all the schools fell down in 1932. And they immediately got all their schools rebuilt by the PWA. And that's why they're all in, exact, you know, in that uh, Mission Revival architecture. Beautiful buildings all over that get filmed by Hollywood for high school movies. <laughs> you are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. So we need that, and we need, but we need to rebuild in light of the growing hazards. So we've got to do things smart. We have to think about flood control with less engineering. Like we're doing, we're starting to think about seriously in the Bay Area with rising sea levels. Fire control. What would we do in terms of hardening buildings? Clearing vegetation, undergrounding wires. That's going to take a new CCC, WPA, PWA to do all those things to make to reduce the hazard of wildfire today and to replace, by the way, pg private industry, which has been very busy with the coupon clipping by its stock owners instead of investing in these things it should have been doing. And by the way, chopping down, trimming more trees is not the answer. You better get those wires underground. Um, And we need long-term planning, by the way, the kind of thing they were trying to do with the TVA, with the National Resources Planning Board. That was really radical, and it's still radical today because we are the land of the free market and the absolute faith in capitalism and its benefits. We need to have energy conservation and reduce our carbon emissions. That's going to take major investment in wind and solar installations like the PWA did. We're going to, but we also need those small work teams that are going to go and help insulate houses. That's where we need another WPA. Okay, knock on your door. Say We're going to insulate your, your attic. What do you think? We'll do it for free. Here come the workers. <clears throat> we can do that. Uh, redesigning, we need to get the, like the REA. Let's redesign and put in microgrids that, so we can turn the electricity off without the whole place going dark. That would be smart. <laughs> and we need investment in mass transit, better bus lines, better rail, and so on, which the PWA and the Bureau of Public Roads, the number one program, the New Deal, by the way, was building roads. For better or worse, it produced a revolution in the productivity of transportation in America as the automobile and the truck replaced the railroad. Now, that's what they wanted to do at that time. That's what people want. Today, we would do it differently. But boy, they did it. Thousands and thousands of miles of roads, and we need more research, and they also supported agri... In those days, most of the research that the government supported was in agriculture and forestry. Uh, Until World War II, that's when you got NSF. We need more of that. And then healing the land. Tree planting. You know, who is it, the international body that called for planting six trillion trees? Intergovernment, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Well, CCC did $3 billion. That was a good start. We could do that, just plant trees. WPA, also, a lot of your street trees in Berkeley, San Francisco, were planted by the WPA. And they've, nobody's taken care of them since, <laughs> <clears throat> as San Franciscans know. Um, and so on. we need more wildlife protection. We need larger parks and more you know, green spaces. That was something they did as well. And uh, we also need a transition in agriculture. And they went in, you know, and they got a lot of the Dust Bowl healed up by getting the farmers out of there, buying the ranchers, buying the farmers out, and turning it in to wildlife refuges, restoring the, the forests, and so on. But we they had massive farm loans, of course, farms price supports. We do that differently, I think. But it worked. It worked to restore it. agriculture. It just continued... As American agriculture had always done to wipe out the small farmer. But the New Deal didn't start that. That's a long story. Okay, economic revival. This is not the Great Depression, but we got the second best. We got the Great Recession, which by the way cost the country trillions in loss, in lost GDP. That, you know, recessions are very, very costly. And that was a dilly. That was the worst since the Great Depression. California was really clobbered by this. When we're so quick to forget now that the boom came back from tech. We're very lucky, but uh, out you go out Central Valley or up to far northern California. They haven't forgotten. <clears throat> okay, so first of all, I got to rebuild and modernize the nation's rotting infrastructure. The Nas- American Council of Civil Engineers, Society of Civil Engineers, says we have five trillion dollars. of of maintenance and repair to do on our infrastructure. Our roads, our bridges, our our, um, dams, which, of course, will never fall down, like Orville, Our airports and ports. New Deal built all those things. And a lot of the things the New Deal built are still there. It's amazing. Even including the old terminal at National Airport, which is now called Reagan Airport, ironically. How about Internet for all, everywhere? Do what the REA did. Got electricity everywhere. Let's get the good Internet everywhere. That's part of modernization. But part of modernization, we brought New Deal brought the country into the 20th century. We need to bring the whole country into the 21st century. And that means green technologies. So you need more research, you need more investment, and you need more building of green technologies. And you know, wind and, and solar power already cheaper than most of the fossil fuels. Certainly, than coal. And yet, how fast are we moving on that front? Well, you'd be surprised. There's been a lot of progress, but it's got to be a lot more. Okay, and then we need to uh, renovate and revive our failing communities and places. We have a disaster in much of the country. If you look at the red states, they are economically the ones that are behind, the red counties. People have done this, you know, that Trump's v- Trump got two-thirds of the electoral votes from one-third of the GDP. And Hillary got one-third, you know, one-third of the electoral vote from two-thirds of the GDP. It's very striking how the cities, the big cities are prospering, the biggest cities are the most successful, and they're pulling ahead of everybody else. And the rural areas where you used to have the old industry, which is more distributed, the agro-processing, resource press that stuff's died. It's not only that it's gone elsewhere, it's that we don't do those things. A lot of those technologies that just don't exist anymore, Nobody, we're, nobody's eating. Like Oakland had a wonderful shredded wheat plant, Who eats shredded wheat anymore? So some of it's just obsolete. I could go on and on. But what we need is also, we need those small public works. This is what the New Deal was so brilliant at. The WPA especially, but also PW, and the post office built civic buildings everywhere. You go to the center of small towns in Utah, where I spend a lot of time, or interior California. And of the three nicest buildings in town, one or two of them are New Deal. They invested every place, every county seat, every, not of course big cities, but every county seat. California, by the way, got more investment than any other state, interestingly enough. And we were not the tech capital of the world at that time. Um, <clears throat> so those small public works are really important because they not only provide housing and civic. Uh, works and spaces and new sewers, new water lines, uh, and in our case today, insulation, uh, solar, rooftop solar, and so on. But they're crucial in two other ways. One is getting buy-in from local governments. One of the reasons New Deal was so successful is the Feds didn't come in and say, you're going to do this. They came in and said, what do you want to do? We'll help you pay for it. And if you can't pay, we'll give you a loan a lot of which I doubt they ever collected. And then we'll put your young people to work under the WPA or the CWA or whatever it was at the time, FERA, and your young people can actually help build the sidewalks, plant the trees, put in the sewers, and do the stuff, build your schools, and so on. And all that's right under everybody's noses. So the political implications of that are really important, which is my next point. Which also the... uh, Oh, no, it's not my next point. I was going to get to... I was just going to say, we need to tax the rich. (laughs) The taxes today are half, effectively half what they were in the 1950s when we had the Golden Age. Surprise, surprise, which was underwritten by a lot of New Deal public works and New Deal equality. The New Deal also produced, that's the most equal period in American history, probably going back to the 1830s, which, you know, Chew on that. So, first of all, we need for distributive justice, just because it undermines a democracy. It doesn't feel right. It also kills people. Um, Inequality doesn't work. But there are three other good reasons. We need to finance our social investment. So you need to get some of that $50 billion in the hands of Mark Zuckerberg and do something with it, other than try to figure out a new company to buy to hog all the social media platforms. <laughs> um, and if fact, it's not pie in the sky, all you have to do, I could talk about this more afterward, but all you have to do is reverse the tax cuts of the Republicans over the last 20 years, and you could easily pay for a Green New Deal. This is not really rocket science or financial econ- economics. It's, oh my God, we can't do this. You can't. Secondly, we need to get a grip on finance and financial speculation. I hope there's no bankers here. Well, actually, the banks are doing really badly, <coughs> including our own Wells Fargo. But the stock investors and the hedge funds, they're doing still doing just fine. You saw the warning they gave the Democrats. Don't go for Warren or we'll give all our money to Trump. Those are Democrats. These are Wall Street Democrats. <coughs> Don't trust Wall Street, I'm afraid. So anyway, we have to get a grip. Because what we've gotten is these massive financial bubbles. And we're in another one. Real estate shouldn't be this expensive. It makes no sense. People should not be paying over 40% of their monthly income. Even techies are paying that. That is insane. That is not a formula for long-term prosperity. And it's because too much of this loose Surplus money. Doesn't know where to go. And it invests in stocks and invests in bonds and invest in real estate. And in, in Europe, there's so much that they're investing in negative interest rate bonds. And that's really crazy. We also need, I hate to say this, in, this, in the Commonwealth Club, they'll never invite me again, you need to curb the power and excess of the ruling classes. The rich stand in the way of this kind of government action because they're fine they think they can buy their way out of climate change. They think they've got the bunker in Idaho or the big spread in New Zealand or the boat, the big yacht hanging off Malibu that's going to save them. And it's not going to save them. It's certainly not going to save the rest of us. So, And they buy political control. Do I have to tell you? California water policy. How insane is, is Newsom vetoing SB1? <laughs> and who does he who's his best friend, Diane Feinstein, and who's her husband, Richard Blum? She is the richest senator in the u s Senate, and they're all millionaires. I'm sorry, those kind of people and the ruling elite of our country is not unhappy with Trump. Where are all the voices? Tom Steyer and three others. the rest of them zip so we have to rely on people like AOC to say something or Elizabeth Warren or Bernie whoever because nobody at the top is saying anything okay we need programs for the people we have to address the needs of the mass of people and not just leave them to suffer the blows of the market and pick up the crumbs left by the wealthy and the corporations we have to raise the income of in the bottom half. What did the New Deal did? It just respected labor rights. It allowed unions to form. We have undermined that completely since Ronald Reagan. And so our unionization rate has plunged. And the evidence, the data, I can give it to you if you don't believe me, is so clear. Unions raise wages. They, they also raise the kind of political consciousness of workers. They educate workers. And they give people security. They're not perfect. A lot of them have really dopey leaders that do really dumb things, and they take some dumb positions. But overall, they're really good. You need living wages, adjusted for the cost of living. You don't want everybody to have San Francisco wages. They can have lower wages in Alabama. It's okay. And they need adequate Social Security and pensions. And a lot of workers... Millions of workers literally have lost their pensions as their companies have declared bankruptcy over the last 30 years. pg and workers, why do you think they support pre- pg and They still support pg e They have no real good reason to do that, except that's where their pensions are. All right. We also need geographical redistribution. We've got to get the money into the rural areas. And if you raise wages, if you put in living minimum wages, federal minimum wage, you can get through the fact that the Alabamas and the Mississippis will never raise their minimum wage. The feds have got to do it. And, of course, if you make Uh, Better redistributed redistribution of Social Security better Social Security payment not to mention national health care Which I'm not going to get sidelined on you will raise people's effective incomes quite a lot in these places But also you need to provide jobs people want jobs. They don't want universal basic income. I'm sorry Andrew Yang It sounds good, but they want most Americans are workaholics people want to work the poor want to work. There are very few people who don't want to work. <clears throat> and most of them are young people in Berkeley.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I'm, that's a joke. That's a joke. My daughter. Uh, okay. So um, we need to that. We need apprenticeships. You know, if you're going to have WPA teams going into insulating houses and so on, you need apprenticeships. You need training. And of course, most of all, you need public education. Our public education system is a disgrace. The neoliberals have cut, cut, cut education. And, you know, they say, you can't do these things. We used to, when I was a kid, we had free public education in California, in most of the country, all the way up. Nobody I knew. I grew up in Palo Alto, the gilded ghetto. And nobody I knew went to a private school. Isn't that weird? Now, of course. Palo well, Alto protects its public schools and makes them semi-private, but they were public schools. And you didn't have to have bake sales either to support them in those days. They actually had money. Do you know what? We've calculated, the, the U.S. Faculty Association has a very rough calculation. What would it cost to have, restore all free tuition in all higher education in California? Really expensive, right? Wrong. $65 per person per year. Wow, we couldn't have possibly afford that now, could we? (laughs) Okay, we need investment in schools. New Deal built skills. It hired teachers. We need to hire more teachers. Our big problem, one of the biggest problems in education, there are too many kids per teacher. Get more teachers in there. It's really tough to figure that out. (laughs) And it's weird that business says, you know, God, you know, our workers are no good. That's why we have to hire immigrants or go abroad. Well... A lot of places, they're seriously undereducated. They're seriously illiterate because the schools stink. And finally, public health. And I'm not going to get into health care, as I said, but if you're going to have some kind of uh, health care for all, you've got to build hospitals and clinics. You've got to do the kind of thing the New Deal did. It's got to be uh, uh, health care for everyone everywhere. It's got to be out there in the rural areas. You've got to pay the doctors extra to go out there. And you've got to train nurses out of people locally and so on who want to stay in their communities. We need clean water. We have how many toxic water systems in this country? It's, It's a catastrophe and it's a disgrace. And so on and so on. There's so much we can do for the people and for health and happiness. And it will all redound to political renewal. Our our situation is remarkably similar to what was faced by FDR and the New Dealers. It was a national political failure. I mean, Hoover didn't know what to do. He tried some things, not enough, and it wasn't him personally, but that's what they all believed. Even Roosevelt kind of believed it. Balanced budgets, don't want to spend too much. And Roosevelt came and he just said, you know, he saw the despair. He saw what was happening And he took it to heart. And he said, we got to do something for the people out there. And so they did. And, you know, fascism was rife. Read Ira Katznelson's book, Fear Itself. Fascism was rife in the world. The U.S. was almost the only place to go to the left at that time. And I don't mean communism. I don't mean state socialism. It was New Deal reform, capitalist reform. It's capitalist reform. But the capitalists went kicking and screaming. They hated Roosevelt. Almost to a man. And I say man advisedly, with a couple exceptions, like Mariner Eccles, um, Henry Kaiser, the president, oddly enough, of IBM. What was his name? Um, I can't remember his name offhand. There were about three or four big capitalists that supported him, and the rest hated his guts Because of redistribution. He was going to tax them. He was going to help raise wages. How God forbid. All right, so the federal government has to take charge again. A combination of urgency, ambition, and leadership, and pragmatism. FDR was a consummate pragmatist. So, you know, they tried the NIRA, the NRA. It didn't work. They just dropped it and went on to something else. They went on to about, we have on our website, over 60 New Deal programs summarized. Who knew there were 60? Most people say, well, I think it was Social Security and WPA. That's all anybody remembers. But it was, it was dozens and dozens. You have to mobilize the people. <laughs> and they have to feel like the government is working for them. Then they will work along with the government. And I don't think they feel that way. But they need, you have to say, come on, everybody, we have to work on this climate transition. We have to take it seriously. Here are some jobs doing serious work to address the problem. And by the way, if you're a coal worker and your community's declining, we're going to give you work transitioning into something else, rebuilding your community. Those communities, okay, you're not going to get Amazon or you're not going to get Apple to locate in West Virginia, and they're not going to do it you can still invest in those communities and still stimulate local companies, give people meaningful work, make them feel like you care and like their communities count and that they can restore the kind of life that they want and their kids can have the kind of life they deserve. And you have to appeal to all people. It has to be universal. You have to appeal to, like, working people, some phrase, okay? You don't like working class, like us old lefties say, then Whatever. You know, the bottom 50%, the working people, whatever. You've got to appeal to all people. It can't be just programmed for this disadvantaged group, these homeless, these black people, these... It can't be that. For women, it's got to be for everybody. The white men, too. Much as uh, I'm not that proud of being a white guy. <laughs> and you have to revive these desperate communities. You just have to encounter the fact that most of them really hate us on the coast, suspect the government that isn't interested in them, so they go listen to Fox News and become even stupider. <laughs> it, more ignorant. Excuse me, that was unfair. More ignorant. <laughs> and you've got to people, give people a sense of national purpose. You know... Nationalism is very powerful. Trump can mobilize that. Anti immigrant feeling, them them versus us. Those are powerful, powerful things that demagogues and fascists have always done. And if you're going to counter that, you need to give people a sense of national purpose. We are going to do this together. The Commonwealth, the common good, the public good. We're all, this is a national project. It's bigger than, it's not going to Mars. We don't need to go to Mars with Elon Musk, fancy, fancy rocket ships so that rich people can go colonize Mars. Who the hell needs that? And I love space exploration, but this is nuts. The earth is burning up and we want to go to Mars. Okay. All right. Even uh, some astronomers think it's a good idea, but. What we really need is a recovery program here for the common good. And so I just think that's why we need a Green New Deal. We need to attack a broad front of programs, large and small. We need to rebuild the infrastructure in the declining, desperate places. Uh, We need work. People want work, they need to feel worthy that they're doing something meaningful, and they need to learn. They need job training, apprenticeships, and education. Working people are the foundation. They're the ones, by the way, that have swung California. We can talk more about that. And they need a sense of national renewal and collective purpose. So the Green New Deal is not a left-wing fantasy. It is a necessity. That's it. It's a necessity, or we are really sunk. I don't know, on that very happy note. (laughs) But the happy note is, we did it before, we can do it again. It's that simple, if we just remember our history. Thank you very much for indulging me.
1: So basically what you're saying is we should do it again, but without the shredded wheat.
0: Without, and Well, and without so many big dams. There's a number of things.
1: <laughs> All right. Uh, time for questions. Uh, I'd like to remind our online audiences that they're listening to Professor Dick Walker speaking about the Living New Deal. So uh, who would like to ask the first question?
0: Sorry if I ate up your question, Tom.
3: No. Um, in terms of the New Deal, there, there were, they decided on deposit insurance rather than a convertible currency. And given the, the world situation that it is now, do we need to rescue the banks or what uh, what needs to be done in currency and money to make this work on an uh, international level? Look,
0: I'll give you a kind of generic answer. I could go on about that a bit. Um, the banks are in trouble because the money's all run into speculative finance. It's all in the security world and not in the banks. And the banks are kind of, you know, as they should be, they're, they're plumbing. But our waterworks are falling apart and our banks are now in deep trouble and you need the plumbing systems. Um, so yes, we, we need to intervene to make sure we have enough banks and they're solid and they're not doing silly things with their money as they were doing back in the 2000s. They're on a solid footing and God knows what they're doing now. But let me tell you that, you know, I'm not quite like Elizabeth Warren. I don't have a plan for everything. But I think that Americans have plans for everything. And I have always been impressed just in the Bay Area of the talent and the ideas and the expertise on everything from smart buildings, public housing, water supplies. We have the knowledge. It's all about the political will. And if you had the political will, and you had the leadership and the money, the good ideas will just come flowing out.
2: <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. Um, the thing that really impressed me was how simple your bridge between the old New Deal and the new Green Deal is and how persuasive it is and how practical and 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 obvious it is and given that i'm just kind of wondering how you're finding your ideas and your proposal kind of resonating in the larger political situation that we have these days and if you see any like are there some connections being made and where do you see the opportunities for it to resonate more
0: well, look, the Living New Deal <clears throat> has been going for about 10 years. We are known around the country for our historical documentation work. We're not as well known for kind of political advocates. For a long time, we sort of kept our uh, light under a bushel. But as you can tell, I'm not doing that anymore because <laughs> the time is right. And we have something to say. Naomi Klein loves us, as that's any consolation. <laughs> I don't know whether AOC has ever heard of us or other people, uh, Ed Markey and others. <clears throat> We're trying to get the word out there. And it's, it's hard because, you know, the New Deal not only was a long time ago and almost everybody from that time is gone, but also we just don't do, you know, when Ken Burns would do World War II or the Civil War, but he's not done the New Deal. He did the Roosevelt, and there was one segment kind of on the New Deal. You know, so there's not one museum to the New Deal in the country, and yet there's a monument, a museum to everything else, right? Every other great, great generation. So, what about? So, Americans have forgotten completely. Then you add to the fact that the right wing hated the New Deal. They continued to hate it. They hated it even more when the Great Society came along, and they eventually won with Reagan and neoliberalism. And they have systematically dismantled as much as they can. And Trump is still dismantling everything he can. We can see it so clear with Trump because he's so simple. He's such a simple, Obama did it, I gotta undo it. Right? (laughs) But more complicated minds at the Heritage Foundation and so on have worked for years, 50 years now, to dismantle the New Deal. And the only thing they can't touch... Well, I'll say there are two things they can't touch. One is Social Security. And they've tried. They've tried. And it would be insane to take it apart. And second thing is they can't undo all those public works that are still out there working. And they're everywhere. Particularly if you ever go camping go to a national park. But they're under your feet. You know, in the East Bay Met, a lot of the water system. East Bay Parks, the old, you know, original ones, are just all CCCWPA. And And, you know, we use them all the time. We use this stuff. Oh, the Bay Bridge. I forgot that. (laughs) Well, the half that's still there, the nice half, (laughs) depending on which way you're looking. And so on.
2: Well, just a quick follow-up thought is that um, I I think these ideas would resonate pretty quickly and pretty dramatically in the whole planning profession. I'm an urban planner by background (laughs) and training. and. Yeah, you got the Department of City Regional Planning sitting over there right next to you <laughs> at Berkeley, and it just seems like there might be a really interesting connection to make there. Yeah. As a you know,
0: you're absolutely right. And but we're a small, you know, dedicated crew. We have volunteers around the country who send us site information basically. But you know, got a we're barely a dozen people. Right. Most of them unpaid yeah. or very poorly paid mm-hmm. because You know, where's the money? So if I could get Tom Steyer to stop running for president (laughs) and give the Living New Deal, half a million, you know, little half a million. It's a drop in the bucket. The things we could do in terms of getting the word out, in terms of researching so much. You know, there are literally hundreds of thousands of New Deal sites. We've got 16,000 on our map. And we're really proud of that. That's pretty great. People look at that and they go, wow. But it's a drop in the bucket, too. So we're trying living New Deal. you know, any of you know any billionaires? <laughs> Send them my way. I'm, I'll take millionaires <laughs> 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 Well,
1: it would seemed to me that you you could get the democratic candidates to sell the new Green Deal much better if they kept talking about it as a, as a new version of the of the New Deal, because yeah, I think a lot that, of that it'd be a lot less scary to people.
0: Yes, I think it sounds like it's just coming out of nowhere, mm-hmm. and some of them you do see in some places people saying, "Well, you know, we did it before." Yeah, but uh, you know, Naya McLean says that, and yeah. she has a certain amount of clout. But uh, uh, I think a lot of times it sounds scary, as oh my God, it's just impossible to do such a thing, and unlike universal health care where you have to point to other countries, mm. which really scares Americans. I mean, I, I couldn't do what the French do for guns. <laughs> you know, they do strange things. <laughs> and, uh, we yeah. don't, uh, you know, we're Puritans. We don't have to eat frogs. <laughs> but, um, but in this case, we did it. Our grandparents did it. Mm. And it's crazy to think we can't do it again. And I just, I've got to, you know, I'll keep trumpeting that, that, that theme. As long as I can. Yes, you're in the back.
3: When I think about a lot of the issues that are, are plaguing us today, I, I, there's there's so many things that are symptoms of root causes, and I think back to that old Thoreau quote: "Or for every thousand hacking at the leaves of evil, there's but one tending to the root," something like that. Right. Did Roosevelt have like a Fox News type thing to contend with back in his day? And also, were there money in politics, just the, the flow of the power of those, all those people yeah. who you said were, uh, were hated him? It seems that – did they have that same power to influence elections with their money back then that they have now? And Oh, yeah. OK.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely.
3: And how, yeah. how about media, though? Was there like a media that, The news prime news
0: media at, at that point. time were still newspapers, okay. city newspapers, plus the radio. Okay. And uh, city newspapers were by and large against him, led by the Chicago Tribute. Uh, I don't know if any, like California, I don't think they hate, I think they were all against him. Certainly the Chronicle and the Examiner. Hearst, who owned a huge chain of newspapers, hated Roosevelt. He had started as a populist and ended up as a, a kind of Mussolini admirer. So that didn't work out so well. Uh, The radio is interesting because like Trump, Roosevelt sees the new technology of the radio and he was a master of it. And people literally gathered around their old console radios, my grandparents, even my parents when they were young, to listen to every one of his um, fireside talks. People loved him as a result. So that really worked. On the other hand, he also had Father Coughlin and Huey Long and... What was her name, that woman, who, who had huge radio networks who were pumping out incredible, you know, quasi-fascist, horrible stuff. Um, so it was a battle, just like it is today.
3: Okay, and are there any takeaways from how Roosevelt handled money in politics as well as the Father Coughlin's of his day that, that the proponents of a Green New Deal can in turn... Look to as keys to move forward?
0: Well, you got to be good at social media. That's clear. The one thing, you know, I, I should say that the New Deal regulated the radio. It was one of the th- important things they did. So they're the ones who broke it all up, and it's now been reconcentrated by Re- uh, Reagan and Clinton, basically, into these. Huge, you know, Clear Channel and Fox. I mean, Fox couldn't exist in the way it does if Murdoch couldn't buy up everything under the sun. So that's important. And, you know, obviously the money with the PACs and so on is really bad today. Um, And one of the prime, uh, and I think the Democrats, you know, even very straight line Democrats like Pelosi really understand the need for things like cleaning up the media cleaning up democ- voting rights and so on. Really basic stuff to get our democracy back in order. And I think that includes... I don't know, she hasn't perhaps been up front, but it's surprising how many Congress people now are finally on the, maybe we should do something about Facebook and the others bandwagon. But we're a long way from solving that. Europe is so far ahead of us. And if we don't regulate and control and democratize the social media, w- w- I think we're done. Uh, it's yes? Twitter just uh, self-corrected itself today. Yeah. So, c- Twitter is actually now the leader, maybe because it has so much bad publicity because of Trump. <laughs> but they're, they're actually making more effort than anybody. But in the end, we wait. This is like philanthropy. Philanthropy is a wonderful thing. And, uh, you know, off, wonderful guy to give all this money. But he should be also have half his money taken away and use the social investment. And then he can do philanthropy with the rest. Mm-hmm. So philanthropy is okay, but it isn't going to solve the basic problem of democracy, democratic control, social investment, and the social good, and redistribution. So uh, that's the same problem with the tech boys. They're, they're, you know I'm glad Twitter's doing that. I'm glad that some of the people in tech companies have woken up trying to do something. But by and large, they have not done enough, and they're protecting their right to make a lot of money by selling you your airtime, your information for profit. And, you know, we pay them. How much is Zuckerberg worth for giving us a little bulletin board to post our family photos on? (laughs) I mean, we call them geniuses. They were just in the right place at the right time. You know, it's like like calling the big four geniuses because they built the railroad. No, they didn't. The Chinese and the Irish built the railroad and some good engineers. The only one that was slightly intelligent on that big four was Crocker. Stanford was an idiot, and I went to his university because his wife was intelligent. (laughs) But nobody, you know, read, if you haven't read um, Richard uh, White's Railroaded. It's a real eye-opener about what a bunch of s- scam artists and numbskulls those guys really were.
1: All right, I'm, I'm sorry, but we've run out of time, uh, so.
0: That's good. I was going to bury myself even deeper <laughs> with the Commonwealth Club. We
1: actually have lots of time. We just didn't want you kicked out of California. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you all.
1: Thank you very much. So you're suggesting that, the, that the, uh, some Democratic politician takes this up and says the, the New Green Deal or the Green New Deal the Green New Deal is just the same as the New Deal, and we did it before, and we didn't turn into communists, so maybe we can do it again without doing that. Okay, so thank you very much for coming in, in uh, it's the 117th year of enlightened discussion at the Commonwealth Club.